This is the Christian Heritage London podcast from London. Well, it's a great privilege to be sitting here with James Eglinton in Edinburgh, the Athens of the North. Thanks, Ben. <laughs> Do you come from Edinburgh? Yourself? No, I don't. I come from much further north, from Inverness in the Highlands. Oh, really? So I came to Edinburgh oh, many moons ago, it feels like now, to study. And uh, I had three years away from Edinburgh, at one point living in the Netherlands. But apart from that, I've been here for quite some time. So when were you in the Netherlands? Between 2000 and uh, what, uh, no, 2010 and 2013. Hmm. So I've, I did my PhD here in Edinburgh. And then when I finished that, I moved for three years. I went Dutch and um, was working at a university in a place called Kampen. Mm-hmm. Sort of teaching theology there and doing research and writing, um, trying to improve my Dutch a lot for three years, and then came back to Edinburgh after that. Uh-huh. Trying to improve your my Dutch, your Dutch. Right. Yeah. So, were you teaching in English? I was teaching primarily in English, yes, but working in Dutch as a working language. Other than that, and preaching in Dutch in Dutch churches mm. and that kind of stuff. But um, Dutch universities are very keen on internationalization and boosting the, the amount of things that happen in English in terms of teaching materials. So mm. something that I could provide as a native speaker. Striking, yes. And you must have had some Dutch before you went. Yes, yeah, I did. So I'd, I'd just finished a PhD on Herman Bavink, who was a Dutch theologian. And I'd learned to read Dutch um, in order to do my PhD because most of his work is untranslated. But um, I'd never heard most of this stuff pronounced. So I could read it very well, but I didn't really know how to say it. Uh-huh. Or if I did, it, it probably sounded awful to, to actual Dutch speakers. Um, and also my Dutch vocabulary was 100 years old. So it was really out of date. So I would I would speak and sound really you know weird in terms of accent because it was all over the place but also very bizarre in terms of vocabulary oh wow so it took a while just to kind of flatten that out and <laughs> get a regular kind of accent and um and also just learn which words people still use so i had this kind of very odd archaic <laughs> dutch for a while <laughs> Yeah. That's a sweet phenomenon. The, um, I did uh, classics, and similarly, you, you learn a whole language, and sometimes you can work out, I can see what that sentence, how that sentence makes sense. I don't know what it means, but I can see how it makes grammatical sense. <laughs> Continental Europeans do put us to shame with their, their facility with language. Now, so you're from Inverness originally. That's far north. Oh, there's still a, a good bit further north that you can go in Scotland if you go right up to, you know, uh, John O'Groats, and then if you head up to, you know, Orkney or Shetland and go really, really far north. But um, on the mainland, yeah, it's a good bit further north than Edinburgh. So mm-hmm. I grew up there. Um, my family doesn't come from there originally. So my mother's family comes from the Isle of Lewis, the Outer Hebrides. So that side of my family is Gaelic speaking, um, Hebridean. Uh, my father comes from a town outside Glasgow called Airdrie. So Lowland Scots, English speaking. So I grew up as a, almost as a kind of third culture kid within my own country. And that's, you know, two different languages in the home and extended family and neither parent from the, the Highlands itself, so I had an Islander parent and a, a Lowland Scot parent, mm-hmm. and uh, you know my cousins were in two different parts of the country, and you know you would use different languages interacting with them, even wow. although we were all Scottish. So it was a really interesting upbringing on that level because you're always navigating cultures mm. and also switching between languages and. Um, 
you know, being on an island as opposed to being on the mainland, being in a really rural environment. So my, I would spend my summers with my, my granny in a, quite a remote part of the Isle of Lewis, um, you know, a really small village. Um, mm. But then, you know, my dad's family are, you know, from more urban environments on the mainland. So it was, it was really fascinating growing up. I'm not sure if I knew just how, how big a privilege it was to normalize being able to code switch culturally but also just in terms of languages as well and um, learning how to navigate all of that was really great really mm, stretching fascinating and it was great help with then moving to the netherlands afterwards because it's normal that there are two languages anyway in your home environment so adding a third not a big deal and just learning again how to adapt to another culture so there's a kind of elasticity that that kind of upbringing gives you that then transfers quite well in, in later life i think oh, superb Wow. And, and did your grandmother speak anything of the, the revivals of Lewis? Yes, yeah, she was converted in a revival in their village. So I grew up hearing quite dramatic stories about that. Gosh. Yeah. Wow. Can you tell us any? <laughs> oh, there are far too many to tell in, this, in <laughs> the length of problem. this podcast. But um, <laughs> no, just uh, quite, quite remarkable things that are things that I've never experienced uh, personally, but that, that a whole village was quite transformed by, but uh, and also in terms of a, an overwhelming sense of the holiness of God, you know, descending on a room full of people to the point that nobody could speak. People were just staggered by what they were aware of. Um, and this all happened long before I was born, but then I you know, grew up you know, knowing people who much later in life had experienced that much earlier in life, but they were marked by it. So I hadn't experienced. I wasn't there when it happened. There's still uh, some kind of experience of what this does to a community. So, so things like that were also <sighs> kind of powerful uh, memories that get passed on mm. throughout generations. That's ex- yeah. that, that is awesome. I, I hadn't mentioned yet, but <laughs> yeah, you've come to prominence through your study of Herman Bavink, mm. of course, uh, is. Uh, Fascinatingly, of course, only translated into English in 2003, I believe it was, his, his reformed dogmatics. Yes, between 2003 and 2008. Yeah. So that was just around the time that I was here in Edinburgh at seminary. Uh, the, well, it was called the Free Church College back then. It's now called Edinburgh Theological Seminary. So I was, uh, yeah, just getting my um, initial kind of exposure to the study of theology in a very intentional way as Bavink started to get released in English. Uh, which was a, a really great providence that those two things overlapped because he was uh, tremendously helpful to read and actually quite changed the direction of my life. Mm. So very yes, thankful indeed. that that, uh, that those things happened at the same time. Now, did you have a beard back then? I, I did not have a beard back then. Because <laughs> <laughs> I must admit, there is a sense in which, I'm sure I'm not the first yeah. to say. No, I, I hear that very often, that, oh, that we look bizarrely similar. It's a bit like when people look like their pets. Yeah. You're trying to work out this... <laughs> Is the is the dog trying to imitate the the master's <laughs> face, which apparently dogs can do, uh, or has something happened in another direction? So, I don't know. But yeah, we do look strangely similar. Yes, indeed. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but that's as far as it goes. That's as far as it goes. It must have been a thrilling moment, though, when um, you think of trying making a, a comparison, say some great reformer who has been studied and agonised over for centuries, and then you suddenly have the first for the first time these great mm-hmm. works translated from such a vivid such a colorful thinker mm. and you were studying at that moment 
gosh, maybe we should come back to Bavink in a moment. Mm. But, but do you remember yourself? How was it that you came to understand the gospel yourself? Mm. How you came to see and rejoice in Christ? Uh, so I grew up in a Christian home. My parents were, are both uh, Christians, very actively involved in the life of the church. And there are also a lot of Christians in my extended family on both sides as well. So that was the environment that I grew up in. Um, looking back, I can never remember a time when I didn't believe that this was true. Um, but I think it was really as I grew in my teenage years that I suppose the difference between faith and unbelief becomes more palpable, uh, or more, more vivid in the lives of people around you. Well, I went to primary school in the 1980s in Scotland and at a phase in Scottish cultural history where the kind of mainstream social values for small children, as you would imbibe them at school, weren't obviously you know, a considerable departure from a broadly Christian sense of how to be a human being. Uh-huh. Um, that's very, I would say that's, that has changed a lot when I look at my own children, my primary school age children, but uh, the difference between faith and unbelief on a day-to-day level, uh, I, I never felt like I stood out dramatically by coming from a Christian home in primary school, even though I was one of very few kids in my school that went to church, but I just wasn't aware. Um, no doubt there were all kinds of differences, but as a five-year-old, mm. it wasn't that obvious to me. Mm. But as I would say that as I went through secondary school, and you just become much more self self-aware and aware of others as well and the complexities of life and the the kind of formation that you receive becomes more sophisticated hmm. from you know your different school subjects the level gets wrapped up a lot and i started to think much more intentionally about the consequences of the gospel that i believed um, when i got into my last year of secondary school it was quite a transforming event, um, which was that I had a a free space in my timetable and had to choose one more subject. And some of my friends mentioned that there was this really great RMPS, so religion, morality, and philosophical studies, but it was very theological, actually, that was taught by a a retired minister who'd then gone on to become a secondary school uh, religious education teacher. So I heard from a couple of friends who were taking the class that it was just a, a great, you know, lively kind of environment with lots of debates about a lot of the stuff that we would, that we began to talk about a lot anyway, you know, these big existential questions. And um, that was a context where I was outed quite quickly as, um, you know, the, the Christian in the class and had to think a lot more intentionally, but also try to articulate the content of the Christian faith and to a group of my friends who were also just becoming much more self-conscious and intentional about how to form a life and what to believe and how to live on the basis of that belief. So that was a great experience that mm. that year. Um, mm-hmm. And I, I, I just really ended up immersing myself in the study of theology through that. I, I wrote my extended essay at the end of that course, and I wrote mine on Calvin's account of how Christ is spiritually present uh, in the Lord's Supper. And so I, I, I guess I discovered a love of theology as a discipline of the mind uh. in that kind of context. But also it was uh, that was acquired in a classroom context wow. with a lot of my friends who were asking a lot of questions. One of my friends became a Christian as, uh, through that course. Um, so th- that was, and at the same time as that, um, I think I started to listen to the 
preaching in our church in a much more attentive way than I had in the past and maybe started to appreciate it a lot more. So uh, I grew up and I spent my teenage years in uh, Smithton Free Church, Free Church of Scotland, Presbyterian congregation in Inverness. And we're blessed with a pastor, uh, David Meredith, who was really uh, strong at winsomely communicating the, the gospel into exactly the culture that I lived in mm. and and was also really strong on biblical exposition. And I think what I saw through his preaching was that he, he never tried to be kind of relevant in a desperate, sad way, in a way that a lot of people assume they have to be to yes. reach teenagers. Yes. You know, I was a thinking teenager, just a bit of a sponge at that stage, you know, looking to soak things up. And with, I think the difference that I saw in his preaching was that truth, truth is the thing itself that sets the bar for relevance. Truth is inherently relevant because it's the truth. So you don't have to tag Christianity on and try and play catch up with you know, whatever the kids are up to these days and culture. Instead, if you have grasped the truth, that speaks into every domain because it is the truth. And that was something that I saw consistently in his preaching and really soaked up over a few years of listening to him you know, twice on a Sunday and then started going to the midweek prayer meeting and just to, I was just devouring all of this stuff. And uh, so when I was 17 in my last year of secondary school, in the midst of all of this, I, I joined the church by profession of faith. And I, so I, I don't have a Damascus Road story at all, but it's a story of growing up with a lot of privileges by being surrounded by the gospel and hearing it, and then also um, providentially really being blessed by a church setting that really preached the gospel very confidently, mm. um, winsomely, mm -hmm. and, and very holistically in the sense of this lays claim to every part of my life. Mm -hmm. So it wasn't a kind of restrictive pietism that, you know, the gospel is something just for some private moments in your life and mm. you know, doesn't have anything to say to the, you know, the rest of your life. And the rest of my life was getting a lot of, I guess you could call it catechesis from, or it was being offered catechesis from the secularizing culture around me but at church there was a, a sense that i picked up of the, the christian faith as a faith for all of life as well mm. um, and that was presented really winsomely oh, this is, that's beautiful and, and fascinating of course because all those observations seem to have come to flower by your discovery of a, of a thinker mm. in bavink who uh, who exemplifies <laughs> exemplifies those priorities mm. i'd be interested to ask you one thing I find reading Bavink, and I think that you will have thought about this. Let me read a quote I just saw from Bavink. A beautiful thing. The distance between God and us is the gulf between the infinite and the finite, between eternity and time, between being and becoming, between the all and the nothing. And you see, it's like he's got hold of something that Isaiah has said or someone. It's, he's got hold of massive variables. And he, as he's turning them over, I would propose there's no neutrality. I would propose mm. that he's worshipping mm. as he's writing. Mm. And I'd agree. be interested to ask you about the, the question of writing theology as worship. Mm. Yeah, indeed. So that's something that's, that's really beautiful about Bavink's work. His theology has 
what we call in theology a doxological character. It, it's theology that always ultimately shifts up in tone because it's a, refle- it's a form of human reflection on um, God, everything else in light of God, which changes how you view everything else in the first place because the whole world becomes theologized, mm. theo- centered on God. Yes. Um, but then beyond that, his most basic division in how he th- thinks about theology is to write on the one hand of all that God has done for us, mm. and that's dogmatics, and that's a huge part of his work. But then the other, the, the kind of twin sibling to that and how he thinks theologically is what he calls ethics, which is what we do in response to what God has done for us and also in the power of God's grace and what he has done for us. So all of that is um, theology written from a perspective of belief and gratitude, um, thankfulness towards God and a desire to worship. And the thing that you, that, that quote there that you picked up on i think centers this in as the gospel mm. that it's not a kind of worship of some you know, powerful but disengaged deity the quote that you had there talks about god is and the universe becomes or the difference between being and becoming that god is unchanging that um, that we change you know that we're finite uh, whereas god is is immutable to use another theological mm. term mm-hmm. But in Bavinck's theology, Jesus himself, the incarnate Jesus, is the one who bridges those things in that he both is, but he also becomes. He takes on a human nature. He enters our world. And he has a human nature that is um, the same as ours, but without sin. But he also has a divine nature. And these things are united in one person. So the gospel itself is the gospel of the second person of the Trinity entering our world, becoming Mm -hmm. incarnate, living amongst us, dying for us. So from this position of being a creature, being finite, but wanting to worship a God who is infinite, who's unchanging, who's the creator, the way that we do that for Bavink is entirely centered on the one who both is and becomes, the one who is God and who's human at the same time Mm. and who has become those things forever and for Mm. our salvation. Mm. So it's a a really beautifully gospel-centered way to think about theology in the first place because what could sound like very big abstract categories like being and becoming are actually things that he puts in service of understanding the incarnation, understanding the gospel, understanding what it means to be a creature, and then how we relate to our creator. Mm. Oh, it's it's, it's wonderful. His service to us seems to be, that as you you read, he's so terribly quotable. Mm. And that seems to be, it's striking that the people who have enjoyed and have tasted and seen that the Lord is good and who have been known for that, they're known because they wrote down things they saw. Mm. That has influenced mm. influence and, and shaped established generations of people who've gone afterwards when i give tours mm. to people in the city i meet people from all over the world it's not unusual for me to meet a group of people where there'll be three or four continents mm-hmm. in the same group and when i say wilberforce spurgeon whitfield they're not shrugging their shoulders they say mm. oh yeah these people yeah mm. you know you've pastors who are pastors because of spurgeon yeah. you get yeah. people who are doing their jobs because of Wilberforce and so but on. You could add a Bavinck leg to that tour in London because they loved London. Uh, Herman and his wife, Joanna, and they used to go on holiday to London. He used to preach in London as well. So he's, he has a, a London story too. So you, you, you could add that if you want. The issue <laughs> if you is, think that there's enough international interest. There you go. No, that, that would be a delight. The issue is I need to find mm. a way not just to 
say this person was here, but to make an application from it. So, for example, when I'm talking about yeah. Tyndale, I'm not really mm. talking about Tyndale so much as I'm talking about if you don't have a Bible, mm. you are the devil's football. Mm. And uh, he'll kick you around because you're not just going to guess Romans. You know, mm. you need a Bible. And that was what Tyndale found. And then you bring Tyndale in. and that's. So I need to find a way to actually... To, to, and, and frankly, if I just learn a handful of Bavink quotes, they'll probably do the trick because they're so rich. So when you first came across Bavink, now did you did you know Friend and Bolt and these people, or did you meet them quickly? I didn't know any of them in person at all. Actually, I never met John Friend, um, but I, I've gotten to know John Bolt very well, which is a real privilege. Um, no, I was really just working away on him on my own. I mean, I, I was... I, I didn't know anyone in the Bavink world. There wasn't really a, a Bavink world at that point, and it was a, a labor of love by uh, by a few people in the United States to try and translate this book that at that point was, you know, had been forgotten largely. A few people who had read it knew that it was really good, but the wider world was very unaware. So I was working away on on my own on Bavink, and then, or just reading him when I was a student before I'd gone on to do my PhD. At that point, I didn't actually have plans to do a PhD on him. That idea also came to me quite providentially in that towards the end of my time at seminary, I was thinking a lot about doctoral studies beyond this. And my professor of systematic theology at the Free Church College, Donald MacLeod, would quote Bavink every so often in classes. And so that was an, also an initial exposure, was through Donald. And a couple of times he, he would say things like, Bavink's very important and people need to start thinking about doing PhDs on him. But I, that didn't really click at that point that that was me, that I should do this. <laughs> I was more interested in trying to do something that was a bit more constructive and systematic theology rather than you know spend a lot of time digging through someone else's works and trying to you know, piece together some puzzles. But I was interested in doing a PhD anyway and had a meeting with David Ferguson at the University of Edinburgh who went on to supervise my PhD. And I, I went to him with the idea that, um, that there were some, again, constructive things in the doctrine of God that I was quite interested in thinking through issues around you know, the kind of things that every seminarian thinks, oh yeah, I could tackle that. The issue of, does God suffer? Divine impassibility or divine passibility? It was always a big discussion point in, in our classes at the Free Church College. So I thought I could do a constructive PhD on this, and I know the kind of case I would make. But I had a meeting with David Ferguson to talk about how to apply for the PhD, would you be interested in supervising? And um, so he spoke to me about his preferred model of learning to become a systematic theologian, which is rather than rush straight ahead and just try and write your own theology or your own systematics at the beginning, you should spend some time as an apprentice to one of the greats wow. and spend time before you try and work out how to do your own theology, work out how one of the great minds in the history of Christian theology has tried to do all of this. It's a little bit like, I think it's a much older model of teaching, an apprenticeship model that you find, for example, in a lot of the history of the arts. So if you go back to you know, Renaissance Florence and you want to become a sculptor or a painter, well, you know, you don't just get some blocks and start chipping away. You go and spend three years in Michelangelo's studio and, or, you know, in Leonardo's studio and you're watching all the time. You're learning how to copy his techniques and then you'll be invited to, you know, add some parts to some paintings or work on some sections of some sculptures, but you need years of watching one of the greats in order to try and learn what they've done first mm. in order that, that then you can 
try and move on to your own work after that. So it's that kind of model, an apprenticeship scheme, but mm. a, an apprenticeship with one of the greats, which is a real challenge to try and work out what kind of connections someone makes, trying to understand how their context informed the ways that they theologized, and then that enables you to approach them in a more informed way appreciatively, mm. so less naively, mm. but also in a, in a more informed way critically as well, because the greats are all still human beings and they're sinners and they're flawed and they're finite. Um, so that means that you can hopefully do something more useful mm. with them in the first place and then go on to have a more useful voice as a theologian because you're more self-aware and maybe a bit more humble as well through the experience of... Mm. Um, realizing just how far, you know, why we all read these great figures mm. because they're, the scale of their achievement and their reflection is so profound. So David said, I prefer to supervise people, or I, in, your, in your position, I would prefer to supervise you if you were working on someone rather than, you know, just rushing ahead and trying to do your own theology. So he said, have you thought about working on Herman Bavinck? Wow. And I hadn't mentioned Bavinck to him either. So he thought that that would be a good fit in terms of my own background, but different enough to be interesting. And there was just so much work to be done on Bavinck, as there still is. So he was coming at me from lots of different angles. Um, and I also had a conversation with uh, Carl Truman uh, around the same time, quite a well-known theologian in, in North America, but who... I, I knew him quite well as an undergrad when he was teaching in Aberdeen and I was I did a law degree there and we went to the same church. So I also had the same kind of conversation with him. What should I do my PhD on? And he also suggested Bavinck. So um, in God's providence, Bavinck uh, kind of came at me from lots of different angles. Wow. So that's that's how I got into him initially. But but I hadn't met John Bolt at all. Um, and, and again, I was just on my own in Edinburgh at that point. I, I didn't know anyone else who was doing a Bavinck PhD. Almost everyone else at New College at that point in Edinburgh was working on Karl Barth. So <laughs> I was the lone non-Barthian who was, and I was theologically very different to a lot of those guys. And uh, yeah, just again, providentially, the ways things work out are always really interesting mm. to look back on because mm. it's a bit easier to read providence sometimes with yes, hindsight so be really thankful for it but I, I my first foray into the world of other people who were reading him and working on him was in my first semester as a phd student and i was really trying to find my feet and work out how, how you tackle a phd how you narrow down your topic and there was a bavink conference in 2008 in grand rapids in michigan that was a really big event um, to mark the translation of the final volume of his dogmatics and there was a flyer that had been sent out about this with a call for papers inviting PhD students to come and present on their work. But this flyer, I don't think, had been sent to the University of Edinburgh, and that's where I was studying at that point, but a, but a copy had been sent to the Free Church College, to Donald MacLeod, who then, this is, I think, way back, probably in the days before we all used email all that regularly, <laughs> even. Yeah, but I think it got posted to me. Mm-hmm. That's my recollection of it anyway, having been sent to Edinburgh. And then, and then I got the flyer, you know, the, the day before the deadline for the call for papers. And thought, wow. oh, I've never tried to do anything like this before. I've never given a paper, um, and, um, sent it off just in time. And that was accepted. And then, then discovered, Hey, there are lots of other people, oh, not, not in Scotland, but lots of other people in this world who are all trying to engage with them. And that conference was kind of the beginning of everything for mm, me, really, mm, and, and mm. working out who else is reading this figure and how right. do you do that. And I became part of a community rather than a very isolated figure working in my own in Edinburgh. Oh, sweet. And, and strikingly, of course, your, your work at Trinity and Organism, you're looking at uh, the consequences. It's striking. A, a dear friend of mine is, uh, is a composer at the Royal Academy of Music, and he mm. talks to me about symmetry. Mm. 
in Bach, mm-hmm. which is fascinating. The consequence of your having begun and having started to enjoy is when I speak to people who, who know you from outside, talking with Jonathan Watson at Banner of Truth yesterday, he talks about how you are bringing people together and there is a growth, and there are now people are talking about the Bavink movement. Mm. Striking, because you make a comparison with a secular thinker, maybe a, uh, I don't know, maybe a Rousseau or something. You, you don't find the, uh, you don't find that, that natural growth into mm. something beautiful and, mm. and, and based on uh, common interests. And again, it brings up the question of worship. Um, Peter speaks of how as we come to him, mm-hmm. we are being built together. Mm-hmm. It's a, parallel, a parable of something we see in nature, perhaps. Mm. And, uh, and yet, it just comes from this living God of whom mm. we were speaking a moment ago in this beautiful quote I'd found. I'd be interested to ask, could you, if I could try to tease you out on this and let you riff, frankly, mm. the issue of one of the things which uh, Bavink does, which also your pastor said earlier, was he wasn't desperately trying to uh, become relevant. And also you were saying earlier when you were at uh, school, you were talking in terms of uh, truth. And, and so Bavink talks about uh, culture, and that's the big thing that Dane Ortland draws out about him. He talks about how um, Bavink, uh, he didn't see uh, culture as necessarily sinful. Yeah. And uh, having said that, though, you, I have tended to find in my experience that when you get Christians getting excited about culture, you soon find they become more excited about culture than about Christ. Mm-hmm. I don't see that in Bavink. Mm. I see a therefore, mm-hmm. and I see a both and. Yeah. Could I tease you out on that? Would you speak to that mm. kind of observation? Bavink has a very Augustinian way of understanding sin, which has profound consequences for how you understand culture in its original goodness, but also in the sense in which culture is fallen. So, and this takes Bavink away from a kind of naive view of culture. So his Augustinian understanding of sin is that sin isn't something that has an independent existence in and of itself. It's not a, a distinct thing. Uh, God didn't create it. Instead, sin is the disordering of that which has been made to be good, uh, rather than a you know a separate thing that exists somewhere. Um, so the nature of culture is that culture itself is a necessary thing. It has to exist in so far as humans live alongside one another and interact and form a space in which to, to live together. Um, but the ways that they do that um, in light of the fall are disordered. And that means that you have to have a distinct kind of approach to culture where you don't condemn that which has been made to be good, but you're also not naive in approving the disorder that exists within it. Mm. So that means that you become, I think, if you're, if you think about this in a Bavinkian kind of way, um, you become culture's most sympathetic critic. If that makes sense. Wow, okay. And that's a really counter, countercultural thing in, particularly early 21st century um, secular Western cultures. Uh, And I think that's, and this is all tied together with the fact that Western culture is trying so hard to reject Christianity at a very deep level, which means that we've also rejected, I would say, a a deeply Augustinian sense of thinking about good and evil. 
um, which is that the world is good, but the evil is the the fact that Satan has tried to collapse it in on itself, mm-hmm. uh, and we have a disordered world that was made to be good. Um, so if you think of Augustine, Augustine comes to that view having rejected um, his earlier experience of the Manichaeans. So this was pre-Christian religion that had a very binary black and white good and evil sense of the world and you're always trying to work out which things are entirely good and which things are entirely bad and it produces it's a polarizing religion a polarizing worldview and a polarizing Mm -hmm. power on how you think of culture Mm -hmm. so you're always trying to work out which parts of culture are safe which are part of my tribe which are toxic and evil uh, which do I accept and which do I reject um, but what you find with, uh, so you, and that's what we had in, at least in one subset of West, of, of, of culture in, in Augustine's worlds. And he rejects that when he realizes that Christianity makes you think about the worlds and culture very differently. And then that means that Augustine has a very different way to interact with culture and to see it, conceptualize it in the first place. And we've now gone to something like a return in, sec- in secularizing Western culture in the present moment to something like the Manichaean world of mm-hmm. everything is, you know, you're either on, you're either with me or against me. Yes. You're either someone that I approve or someone that I wouldn't ever countenance friendship with. Um, and it's a view of culture that is, light and dark good and bad um and it's very uncritical towards i think both sides you know your your own side and whichever side you oppose so we see this in our politics we see it in the production of culture we see it in cancel culture it's just it's a and i think it's a product of losing touch with what augustine taught us about how to think of the world christianly so bavink is, is is an augustinian when you read him on culture in an age that's trying to go back to what Augustine rejected, you know, a, a world of friend or enemy, uh, and that's it. And there, there are no possibilities between those. Mm. So I think that that makes him really interesting to read yes. in, in a century on mm. um, because of what culture has become. Yes. Culture wars. Yes. Yeah. Oh, that's absolutely fact. And that is so useful mm. for someone who's trying to engage, someone who is gifted, mm. for example, in the arts and so on, and wondering, mm. how do I do this? Mm. And uh, how would I do this with authenticity? And you might find by doing the arts, you are that much more authentic. Can I ask quickly, next question, um, what are you up to now? Uh, At this very moment, I'm trying to finish a few book projects. Uh, So I, I had a sabbatical last year that coincided with the pandemic. So it was really hard to get to libraries in the first place. It also coincided with... um, the library at, at New College where I work being kind of decanted and relocated um, because of a, a, a huge fire protection renovation project. So it was really hard to get to books. So wow. That's kind of difficult if you have a sabbatical to try and write your own stuff. Um, so I was, I was really just left with the library that I had at home and in my office for six months. I had to work from home a lot and I have four small kids who were at home a lot as well. Um, so it, it meant that I had to change my writing plans quite a lot. So I had to shelve a different book project. I tried to work out, okay, what could I do with these six months that would be really useful to the academy, to the church, to thoughtful Christian readers? So I, I decided to spend a, as much of that time as I could uh, doing a long, deep dive through the works of Herman Bavink's nephew, oh, really? Johann Herman Bavink. Oh, wow. So J.H. Bavink. Love him. Who was, so I'd read some of his stuff before, but I hadn't read anywhere near enough. And I, I had lots of his books that I had yet to work through. His, his stuff is, is largely untranslated. 
So I spent a lot of that time reading through his works, trying to get a sense of what he had done with his uncle's teachings. So Hermann Bavinck died in 1921. So he saw the First World War. Um, he had a lot of thoughts on what the rest of the 20th century would be like uh, and the kind of challenges that Christianity would face in Western culture. But he was also quite aware towards the end of his life that um, you know, the, the, the 20th century would go on far beyond his own capacity to contribute to it. And he invested a lot of time, Herman Bavinck in his later years, in young Christian leaders and trying to help um, students think really clearly about about the faith and about the world, about the gospel, about evangelism, about culture. And one of those students was his nephew, uh, who himself was a quite brilliant thinker and who spent a lot of his life in what we now call Indonesia. So he, he had two periods on Java, as it was known then in the Dutch East Indies. In the first period, he was the pastor to effectively to an expat church or to uh, quite Dutchified Asians. And then he came back to the Netherlands for a while and then he returned to Java, but this time with a very different mindset and strategy. Um, and he became a, a Christian presence in the local community rather than a pastor to expats. So a, real, a, a, a very thoughtful missionary who took a, a lot of his uncle's theology and thought about it in quite fascinating ways with what what the gospel means for Javanese cultures that have that didn't have their own Augustine hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years ago to help them rethink a kind of pagan view of the world and of of uh, beyond this world. So I spent a long time reading J. H. Bavinck and became completely fascinated by him. And I discovered one book in particular that truly intrigued me. Uh, because it was written right between these two periods of you know, the first period in Java and the second. It's a book called Personality and Worldview. And in one part, it reflects a lot of debates that were happening in Western culture around the idea of worldview, which is a debate between what well, one side is that worldview is a kind of programmatic thing. You know, if you sign up to a worldview, then it's a kind of cookie cutter approach. That So everyone who has a particular worldview will kind of look and and think and act in the same kinds of ways mm -hmm. but that's very much against the freedom of the individual and really kind of downplays the human agency where is your sense of personality if you have a worldview so then there was another side in the debate that said you know worldview is is just a, a kind of personality writ large and the you know of of the personality of whoever the worldview becomes named after and really we're all just free spirits and worldview is, is a bit of an illusion it's a facade and really we're all individuals so it's it's that kind of historic debate between the the one and the many and the individual personality and the group Wow. And those are still really huge issues today between mm -hmm. the, you know, whether we should be individualists or have a group identity. Mm -hmm. um, so this book, Personality and Worldview, is fascinating in that regard because he plots a very different path forward with how we think about worldview. But it's also an attempt by him to think through what he had done in his first stint in Java with trying to work out, you know, I'm there as a Dutchman, as a Westerner, and the people I minister to are also largely expats. Mm. But there are all these people out there, you know, who, who surround us, who are not expats and who are who are not in the process of becoming Western. How do I communicate the gospel to them? Mm. Is worldview just a, a Western kind of concept? Um, how do I relate to them as individuals? So it's a book that kind of moves in two directions in his mm. life, mm. and I think it sets up how we understand what he did with 
So afterwards, he wrote lots of really fascinating stuff. He wrote a brilliant book called The Word for the World, as yet untranslated, on how the Bible is one book that manages to be relevant to people, whichever culture they're from, um, whilst also transcending every individual culture, every particular culture in the world. It's a brilliant book in terms of the Catholicity of the faith. Mm. So the, the, the kind of stuff that he goes on to produce after this is all, I think, a fruit of what he did in this book, Personality and Worldview. So I read that book and thought this also reframes, you know, worldview is such a contested term amongst Christians. And well, it's, it's not really a well-known term in British culture, really, but in, in America, it's, it's a real marmite term. People love it or they hate it. Mm-hmm. And when you read J.H. Bavinck, um, his perspective on worldview is very different to what the vast majority of particularly American, you know, biblical worldview people are talking about. And uh, so his book really challenges them to think in quite a different way about worldview. It also challenges the anti-worldview crowd to think more positively about worldview as well. So it's, it's a really fascinating book. Mm-hmm. I thought this has a lot to say mm. a hundred years on. So I, I spent a lot of my sabbatical translating it. Oh, wow. So it's now just about done. Um, wow. It's coming out with Crossway in about yeah. uh, a year's time or so. Um, so I'm really excited about that book. Oh, so you're asking wow. what I'm doing right now. So I'm, this week I'm trying to finish the, the introductory essay that explains uh, how to read the book the debates that it was involved in at the time and how it speaks to debates are big issues in our own day and how useful a book it is. We did a book launch for Making Faith Magnetic, mm. uh, Dan Strange's book, and we're doing a reading group going through it at the moment who's five magnetic points. Yeah, it's a great book. He's, yeah, and J.H. Bavink, I, I was so helped by him when he said, mm. when I'm talking with a Muslim, I'm not talking about talking with Islam, I'm talking mm. with this yep. Muslim and his Islam. Mm. And some other helpful points is, is, I'd love to talk with you more about his elenctics and mm. how they relate to the, um, the Turretans and so on. But could you just mention your podcast, which is about to start? Yeah, so about to start recording a podcast that is called Grace in Common. And it's a podcast with three really dear friends. Uh, Corey Brock, who is a pastor here in Edinburgh, um, originally from the States. One of my, he was my first PhD student, um, also a Bavink expert. Um, Grace Utanto, who is Indonesian my second PhD student um, <laughs> and also a, a Bavink expert who teaches at Reformed Theological Seminary in the ah, States right. and Marina Stiong, who's a, a, an old friend. Uh, he's a pastor in Amsterdam and ah. an expert on a theologian called Klaas Schilder, a Dutch theologian. So we're four friends from three continents, from four countries. Uh, but what we have in common is, is grace. Uh, so we're all mm-hmm. um, really committed to God's grace as shown in the gospel as something that transforms how we live within the world, how we relate to God, and as something that works its way out quite distinctly in our different continents, in our contexts, also in the the working context that we're in, because two of us teach theology and two of us are pastors, but it's also grace that we have in common Hmm. across all of those settings. So the podcast is an extended conversation between the four of us about lots of uh, big issues Mm. that that drive us, things that we're curious about, uh, ways that we want to try and learn from each other. So we've had this extended conversation going on as friends for years, and we kind of thought, well, it would be quite fun to take this uh, and make this available just talk but in a more public way as as a group and lastly uh, so it's going to be called grace in common grace in common so it's a bit of a play of the the doctrine of common Common grace grace. right so which is a distinctly kind of reformed uh idea that that god shows grace to to those who 
believe the gospel and those who don't, um, and that that grace is common across humanity. Um, you know, so much earlier in this conversation, you mentioned um, how we think about art, for example, and um, made me think of a, a line in Calvin where Calvin. Um, writes about the value of reading what he calls profane authors. So these are pagan authors. You know, Calvin himself was originally a scholar of Cicero, um, pre-Christian um, author. Seneca. Uh, oh, sorry, Seneca, of course. Oh, sorry, Seneca. Important <laughs> correction there. So yeah, Seneca. Um, so why Calvin's justification of, of why it's worth engaging with this is that, that the Holy Spirit gives gifts to people. Wow. Gifts of, uh, Calvin even, it's gifts of truth-telling. Mm-hmm. Um so, and if we despise the gift for Calvin, we also implicitly despise the giver. And this is part of a kind of Calvinistic idea of common grace. And it's distinct from special grace. So common grace itself isn't salvific. Um, but nonetheless, it shows the lavish goodness of God, that God is constantly giving good gifts to people, uh, even even those who, who reject him and who despise him. Mm. Um, and that... Uh, when you see that, it's quite hard to unsee because it has such great explanatory power for how you live within the world. Uh, something that drew me to Bavink as well when I d- discovered this idea in him. Um, but it also then becomes a cause for thanksgiving in every moment of your life in the world because all around you, you see the, the outrageous goodness of God mm. to a, a world that, that, that rejects him. Mm. That's, that's beautiful and wonderful. I look forward to that. Um, and finally, can I quickly ask for your advice for anyone listening to this? The advice I would give um, is maybe preparatory to your question. You know, your question is advice to people on what to study or what to read. Before that, you know, the the, the ground in my life was was tilled and kind of broken up a lot in a very good way to make it fertile by the life of the church and particularly by preaching that didn't ever try to dumb things down to me because I was a teenager. And that is particularly, you know, within evangelicalism very broadly, the kind of dumbing down the approach to, well, you know, how do we keep teenagers in the church and in the faith? Well, you know, they're only interested in fun. And so to, to teenagers who are thinking, that's really patronizing. And one of the things that I'm most thankful for in my life is, a church context where the preaching never did that mm. and where it tried to challenge me as directly and comprehensively and as thoughtfully uh, more so even than all the other forms of inputs that a teenager gets in a secular country because teenagers think and they have huge absolutely they do i'm just so thankful that i that my teenagers were in a church where that that was something that was addressed really well sunday after sunday and I think if it hadn't been for that, then I probably wouldn't have had the question anyway. What will I go on to study? You know, why should I read theological books? Mm. So I guess the advice would be not so much to people who want to study, but uh, particularly pastors, um, really go for it with oh. stretching the hearts and the minds of the, the young people in your care. Um, you know, try and raise them up to to a higher standard rather than you know, compress the truth into something that... In a kind of straight jacket or a kind of tiny little box that it's mm. far too big for. Mm. That is wonderful, wonderful advice. And it's beautiful to have seen it exemplified in your own life. Thank you so much for this time, James. It's been wonderful. Thank you. Thank you for having me. It was great to talk. For more episodes of the Christian Heritage London podcast and for information on Christian Heritage London events, tours and walks, please go to christianheritagelondon.org.